Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to The Drummer's Pathway podcast. As we work towards the development of our artistic passions, many of us make the decision to pursue our chosen endeavors as a career. We take a look at our heroes and inspirations and want to follow in their footsteps. But despite our perceptions of where these pathways may guide us, we can be met with unexpected opportunities that often lead us into different directions. It is through the collective experiences of these opportunities that allows us to discover who we are meant to become. My guest today is Joe Bergamini. Embracing many diverse musical styles, he is well known for his progressive rock drumming in a variety of bands, including Happy the Man and Forefront. Currently, Joe tours internationally as the drummer for the Doo-Wop Project, and he has worked extensively on Broadway. Recognized internationally as an educator, he has given hundreds of clinics in a variety of schools and conventions, and has also been teaching privately at his own home studio for over 30 years. Among his many private students who have gone on to pursue professional careers is world-renowned jazz drummer Mark Juliana. In 2015, Joe became the education consultant for Sabian, designing and directing the Sabian Education Network for drum teachers, and has also been the senior drum editor for Hudson Music since 2009. He has gone on to write and collaborate on a number of drum education books and projects, which feature industry legends, including Neil Peart, Stuart Copeland, Steve Gadd, David Garibaldi, and many more. In our interview today, we talk about the importance of developing your fundamental skills so you are ready to pursue any new opportunities, even when they are unexpected. We also discuss the value of staying committed to your craft so you're ready to embrace any new challenges, and why it's important to work towards maintaining a good work-life balance. Let's get started. So, Joe, thank you for being on the show today. It's always a pleasure connecting with you. Michael, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, and uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you over the uh, meetings we've had in the last uh, month, couple months, couple years. I, I, couple, I couple of years, I think it's been now. So. <laughs> So, as a musician who's gone on to become an in-demand freelance drummer, highly regarded educator, and someone who is actively involved in the music publishing industry, what inspired you to pursue a professional music career? Um, hmm. What uh, I I guess uh, the easy answer to that is um, when I was uh, a middle school age kid, I um, heard rock bands on the radio, and I was drawn into the drums and specifically I, I heard Alex Van Halen, Steve Smith with Journey, and of course Neil Peart with Rush, and then all the other popular bands of the day, you know, Dio was, um, you know, I, I was born in 1970, so when I started playing drums in the seventh grade, Ozzy was already out of Black Sabbath, he was solo, uh, and, D, and D, Ronnie James Dio was singing in, in, in Sabbath and putting out 
the like the record holy diver i learned note for note but um yeah when i i, I just got into the music as part of the cool thing to do as a kid at that age and the drums just reached out and grabbed me off the turntable and my dream from that day was to be a drummer now early on as I said, you already talked about some of the music that you listen to and as we're of the same generation i'm coming from the same background you were really inspired by the music of Rush and Neil Peart's drumming, particularly, I believe it was the song Subdivisions that first caught your attention um, to Neil's play right. and kind of started started you along the path of progressive rock music and kind of on the on the, the metal end of things. What were some of the other bands along that lines in the progressive medium that inspired you to kind of take that particular direction uh that's an interesting question because i i never when i first started playing drums i i didn't have any um desire or i i didn't i didn't necessarily gravitate towards quote-unquote progressive music at all i just liked whatever i heard that i liked like and i still am that way um so in the beginning it was just whatever was popular. Now, I, I, I didn't come from a really a musical family, and I was never in any school music programs at all uh, until I started literally one day turned on the radio and heard that, that music and asked my parents for drums, and they said, we're going to get you lessons. That was in the, right before the seventh grade. And so I was just listening. I just got really into music. And so I can clearly remember like Iron Maiden and Dio and Ozzy the heaviest I got was I liked Metallica. Um, some of the Anthrax stuff, I stopped short at Slayer. Like, I appreciated it, but it was a little too, you know, dark for me. And, and um, I, I kind of got off the bus with, the, with some of the, uh, um, like, thrash metal that was happening that was heavier than that. But I definitely was into that, you know, that type of heavy stuff. And um, so, like, albums like Number of the Beast like by Maiden, Ride the Lightning, Metallica, all the Dio records. But I also liked the um, lighter, you know, um, I remember I played along with Midnight Madness, Night Ranger, nonstop. Uh, I loved Triumph, uh, played along with a lot of Triumph. But then uh, also I, uh, Judas Priest I loved, and the Priest stuff then like was, you know, like everybody learned, everybody learned Living After Midnight as their first song. But I got really into them and some of their stuff, and I can clearly remember playing along with Eliminator by ZZ Top. And so these were like, a lot of these records had no, like really weren't hard drumming, quote unquote, you know, excuse me, quote unquote, hard drumming. Um, and then I, I, whatever was popular beyond that. So anything from, you know, a song on a movie soundtrack that was popular. I, I uh, what I started to say before was not coming from a real, my parents always enjoyed music, but they weren't musically inclined, nor did they play an instrument. And surprisingly, my dad, actually, I found out later in life, like he had jazz records and he liked them, but he never exposed me to any of that stuff. So I, I had no real exposure to jazz and I was just really playing uh, rock music. And Rush was the most complex thing that I heard. And like a lot of other guys my age, just Neil's it wasn't just the drumming it was his whole i mean it was the drumming in the sense that it was like it was so clear to people listening to him how much he thought about what he was doing mm 
Mm -hmm. and how thoughtful he was with the lyrics and how he thought about everything. Like when I finally got the exit stage left video and I could see him, I, I, you know, the architecture of his drum set and the album artwork and the lyrics. And it, it was just all so compelling to me. It was like all so fascinatingly well thought out. And like his, I just felt like his intellect just jumped right out me and a thousand other people. But you know, strangely enough, in my in my school, like no one really liked Rush. Like I had a I had a, uh, a co nerd like myself guitar player friend named Paul, and we used to jam on Rush in the basement. And like all the quote unquote cool kids would be like, "Oh, you like Rush? They're, they they suck. They're like nerd band, you know." So of course, I jealously loved them even more because of that, you know. Um, and and I. I say all this because I'm I'm sort of glad in retrospect that I played along with a lot of music that was groove oriented. It wasn't it wasn't as busy as Rush because I I used to enjoy playing along with, you know, a ZZ Top thing and burying the drum part when there was no fills just as much as I could enjoy trying to play Free Will. And actually since I could bury the drum part in Sharp Dressed Man, I like loved it, you know. And as long as I liked the song I would play. So the progressive thing didn't really um, come a, become. I never. I never. I guess I never. On the one hand, early on, set off to be set out to be a progressive player, and then as I got, actually, as I got deeper into music later on, I. Um, so the sto my story is like like I I went into high school and I I joined the high school band and I had some drum teachers early on. And one of them, his name was Tim Soluk. He's still active in Houston. And we're still friendly to this day. Tim is the first, he was my third drum teacher. He was the first guy who really took an interest in me. And he exposed me to some jazz practice and some basic tenets of jazz. And, um, and I really liked him, but I only had him for about a year and then he moved away. And so he, um, I think he would have exposed me to more of it, but then I, I didn't, I was, at that time, I was frustrated, I guess, and I, I didn't find another private teacher for the rest of my high school days. So, so my sophomore, junior, and senior year in high school, I did everything in the school band. I did marching band, jazz band, concert band. I played for the school musicals, and I listened to the popular music, and I was in different bands. But I, I didn't have a teacher, so it was, excuse me, really just exposed to the popular music of the day. When I got out of high school, I was playing in a battle of the bands locally, and a gentleman named Al Marinaro who I'm still friends with also to this day, who at the time was one of the uh, top uh, sales representatives for Hoshino, who who sells, who sells, is the parent company of Tama Drums, who I played since I started, um, approached me at the Battle of the Bands and he said, you know, you have a lot of promise. You should study with my friend Dom Famularo. And I said, Dom Famularo? I, I've seen him in Modern Drummer. I mean, used to read Modern Drummer magazine like it was the Bible back then. Absolutely. And I went back and I, you know, I paged through the magazine. I'm like, oh my God, like, I have the phone number of a guy who's really doing this. He's in modern drum. So I, I went to Dom like so many other guys. And then, you know, once I started going to Dom and I got, uh, as I, when I got out of high school, I Dom helped. And I also naturally got into a wider range of music and I started getting into more like stuff that musicians listen to. And it wasn't necessarily all progressive rock, but it was, it was definitely, verging that way there was some fusion too like i can remember early on billy cobham return to forever racer x like some of the rock muso stuff like pre-dream theater you know mm -hmm. 
And I joined a band called Wall Street and we played that stuff. We played Joe Satriani, Racer X, um, Jeff Beck, you know, that type of stuff. Um, and my 21st birthday, we opened for Billy Cobham. You know, I was just telling my son that because my son just turned 21. And then, and then through that, I, I got into, you know, I got into, uh, later on, I joined, I formed a band called Forefront after I had been in a Rush tribute band with a guitar player, Zach Rizvi. And then later I joined Happy the Man. But I never, I never, like, I wasn't a walking Bible of prog rock. Like, I, I didn't get into Yes and Genesis at a young age when I was, I, I didn't really, like, I knew their pop hits, but I didn't, you know, I missed the boat on Phil Collins at that age. You know, he was, he was singing, take a look at me now. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know? And, and like, you know, I had that like little, you know, ignorant chip on my shoulder as a kid. And then of course now he's one of my mega heroes and the guy's one of the most brilliant rock drummers in history, in my opinion. But, um, yeah, but I never, I never, uh, I didn't become aware of some of the deeper progressive bands until much later. And like, I didn't even know who happy the man was when, when I got asked to audition for them. And, um, and I didn't have, you know, uh, I, I never, I never had that sort of like, I wanted to be challenged, but I, but I, I never had that attitude that, you know, unfortunately I've met some people who are into prog rock who think, you know, playing, pop music is easy and if it's not odd times and what and a lot of those people can't do those gigs like for other reasons they don't get those gigs because they don't understand what's hard about those gigs like they missed the boat on it so i never i never set out to really do progressive rock and i guess i sort of got into it and then i liked it and got known for it and did it but um i don't know does that answer your question like yeah <laughs> yeah it, it's funny because when i look back to when i was starting out um before i had a private teacher i went to a local music school outside of my public school and um they offered group lessons and so you had a one hour session and there was you know it was basically a full band and so you would usually play a couple of songs and then the teacher would go around and spend five to ten minutes with each, which each groups um so Every week, I really got about 10 minutes worth of instruction. And he, the, the two methods that he would use were first was uh, Carmine Apice's Realistic Rock. So you had to work through that one. So that was kind of one of my first ways to learn how to read, of which I have developed a passion for reading drum music. And once you graduated from Carmine's book, you moved into drum techniques of Rush. So basically, <laughs> so basically what it was, was he, you would sit there, he would put on whatever song you're at and you would play along with it. And he would kind of stare at the chart and tell you which sections that you needed to go through and fix. Although I'm pretty sure it was really just, if you screwed up playing along with it, he assumed that was the section you need to fix. I don't think he actually really knew how to read the charts, but, but from there, one of the things that I found is that I just, I loved just listening to the music, looking at the transcription and following along. And that's really how I learned to absorb all of these rhythms. And I developed a passion for them. The flip side of that, um, because for a long time, I'd always learn songs by getting transcriptions. The flip side of transcriptions, and I know that you feel the same way on this, is that sometimes you can get so locked into the notes on the page that you stop listening to the music. And as a shortcut, sometimes you think it's an easy way to learn a song by having the transcription. 
but then you're not really getting into the whole, the, the, the whole aspect of it. Um, and it becomes a crutch. So I learned how to read, but then when I found I would play with other musicians and they would pick a song, I was really uncomfortable to play if I didn't have a chart or I didn't feel like I knew everything note for note exactly because I was under the expectation that that's what they expected. So it took me a long time to just play music and mm. just you know, and trust myself in the fact that I knew the songs enough to play music with my friends and kind of get through things. and. Once you do that, that's when you start to develop your own style. When you're looking at your influences, you tend to emulate your influences for a long time. And then eventually you start to morph your influences together and you kind of become like a melting pot of influences. And then from there, that's when you start to discover who you are as a player. I know you've been a very active transcriptionist over the years um, and the quality of the work that you have done is exceptional. And I've, I, I've got a number of your books here, including the, the, the modern drummer classic, you know, tracks one as well too, which I, I love to, to just to kind of go through and play along with, because it, it's a lot of fun, but it's all about a balance. You learn songs first by the analysis, but you also learn songs by listening. What mm -hmm. I have also found is that the transcription doesn't teach you the feel. If you don't spend time listening to the music and really absorbing the feel and the emotion that the player put into in the first place, you don't really get how all of this stuff comes together. In your Modern Drummer book, you have a transcription of Rosanna by Toto, which is one of those grooves that I think all drummers sort of strive to be able to get somewhere close to that. But without actually listening to the original track, you never really understand the true magic of Jeff Picaro's playing in that one. But looking at that, how did you get into transcribing at an early age? So uh, that book, Drum Techniques of Rush, I, I also discovered that book on my own. And I spent a lot of time um, listening to the uh, songs and just reading along with it. And and um, it actually helped my reading a lot, that book, because I would be like, oh, that that's that's what that looks like. That's what that time signature looks like. And um, and of course, I'm, I'm definitely an organized, you know, sort of OCD type of guy. Um, I, I have a bachelor's degree in architecture um, because my dad didn't you know we didn't know any professional musicians so i thought you were either a rock star you had a quote-unquote real job so i i you know i had to major in something else and i chose that but um just saying that to illustrate like i always had that sort of like you know ocd organized personality and um you know shortly after i spent a year or two following along with you know that that book and then reading transcriptions in modern drummer um, I thought, I just, you know, naturally thought, you know, Hey, maybe I can, you know, song that I like, it would be cool to try to write that down. I wonder if I could do it and just started doing it for fun. I guess probably, I probably first started taking a stab at it, uh, like later on in high school. Um, my reading probably wasn't super great at that point. And, uh, and then once I was in college and I was studying with Dom, I, I did it. I did it a little bit more, you know, a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just the interest of seeing how things looked on paper. Um, it wasn't so much 
really to learn songs at that point. Uh, I used I used the book for some of the Rush songs that I hadn't figured out by ear. And, um, you know, it's funny is that sometimes if you start using a chart, I can remember I, I was in this Rush tribute band for a while. Some of the songs that I started using a chart for in the beginning, like, you know, eight years in, I was still, you know, they trying to wean yourself off uh, the chart. But but what you said is very true. The being able to develop your um, your memory to remember songs and your ear to be able to be in the moment and react to what you're hearing and, and um, interact with the other players in real time and your ability to read a chart are, are all three equal. Uh, some people might say they're not equal, but they're all important um, aspects, especially if you want to be a working player. I mean, do you have to learn how to read? You don't, of course not. The most important thing is you have to be able to, you know, play with great feel for the music and know the songs and participate in the ensemble. And we all know there's plenty of great drummers that can't read, but, um, but for when I started thinking about the career I wanted to have, and of course I knew I'd want to teach and uh, it just, it just never, it just never, reading never seemed that hard to, you know, like I tell people like, I, I never learned how to read. I'm like, it's, it's not that hard to do. It's not, it's not so hard. It's, it's easy enough that there's no reason not to learn it. You know what I mean? But, um, but in answer to your question, I, I just, I just had an interest in how things would look. And then I spent a long time just, just trying it out and doing it. And then, and then I was like, Oh, I wonder there's this computer program called finale and maybe I can figure out how to look. And then I start, you know, I learned finale and then I, I probably, I did dozens and dozens of transcriptions before the day finally came that I met William F. Miller at Modern Drummer. And I said, you know, excuse me, but I, you know, I think it was at Modern Drummer Festival. You know, I like, could I um, submit, you know, an article or two? I have some transcriptions. And he was like, oh, sure, mail them in, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, I, I say that just because it's like anything else. Like you, you know, the homework the the 10,000 hours, so to speak, you know, that's, it's got to go in before you get the shot because, you know, if I send the one chart into Bill Miller and it was bunk, he, he would have crossed, he would have crossed Joe B off the list of people to take articles from, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of the students that I have tend to be younger and the question always comes up with them is, you know, is, do I really need to learn how to read? And when, and the two pieces of advice that I usually give them when it comes to learning how to read is if you learn how to read and write music down, then it makes the process of learning the songs that much easier because I can listen to something and I immediately know what the person's doing because I can visualize the chart. So if I need to learn a bunch of things quickly, I can just jot down the groove because I can listen to it for 10 seconds and go, that's what he's playing, write it down. And it's the process for me to learn things. Um, I don't necessarily need to write out the whole chart, but being able to write out the different phrases to remember them also helps to stick with me. And the second thing I also tell them is the thing to remember about charts is that it's also a snapshot of a performance. And what I mean by that is that certain bands, they're going to play the note for note that exact way all the time. You know, Rush is a good example of that. 
But a lot of artists, that's what they played when they recorded it at that time. So sometimes they get really stuck on trying to memorize the certain fills. And so what I always sort of tell them is use the chart as a way to learn the arrangement, go through, learn the grooves, get the parts, learn the key fills. The key fills are always the one that the audience is air drumming to. If the audience is air drumming to it, then you need to play that fill. Um, but add your own little style and add your own personality in the context of it because sometimes you'll see an artist and what's what's on the chart is not what they play because they're playing something different in terms of what they feel and so it's really kind of a good balance and there are so many charts available online many of them are terrible but there are so many charts online that a lot of students will, will do a google search for a song that they like and then they'll bring a chart in and then i'll look at it and go okay well this one's got fills every eight bars but there are there's one fill in the entire song so it's really in, important to be able to understand that the chart is the tool but it's also important to really put the time in and really learn the music from there you you know you said a couple things i wanted to just react to the first one is that um I, in my experience young kids are the i never have to explain to them why they they need to learn how to read like they they they're all in the students i've taught i mean i've taught hundreds of young kids over the years like they're so used to books and school that like they're the easy ones it's the adults like you know guys who have been playing in bar bands or playing by ear for years and years or or they read when they were young and they and they and they're so worried and intimidated by it you know it's it's more the the adults that that i in my teaching practice that i have to kind of sometimes you know bring them back around to learning how to do it and and it's it's not always easy it's just like you know learning a language when you're adult and adult is harder you know um so it's the same thing so I, so with the kids you know um and then what you said about the uh the charts i I think you're talking about transcriptions, right? So, um, yes. When so when I, I I published a book last year called the Working Drummer's Chart Book, and my the type of charts that I have in the book are roadmaps. Like so, when I'm on a gig, if I'm on like a corporate or a club date or that, or or even maybe I'm playing with um, you know, whatever those types of gigs, like I don't want a transcription. So like I you know I did a club date Saturday night with a band leader I met he was one of the piano men I'm moving out on the national tour for that show. That guy knows like thousands of tunes and like we we might be doing a tune and I have the roadmap but he's pretty much like 90 out of 100 songs he's going to be just like the original recording but you know if we go if if something goes off the map or even if we're um like we were doing a Zeppelin tune, uh, a deep cut. It was called, it's, um, Hey, Hey, what can I do? Right. Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And, um, there's like a bar three right in the beginning when we, we, we ran through it real quick before the gig and he didn't do the bar three, you know, like I, I don't want a transcription. I need a map so I can be above it. And like, if it goes off the map, I'm not, you know, stuck. So, you know, a transcription is, is it's useful. It's useful for analysis and study. Mm -hmm. It's not always useful in a real gig you know like i've i've sort of come to think but that doesn't that doesn't stop me from wanting to you know do them and use them in the teaching room for the study of the greats and and that includes what you said about the fills where uh most drummers don't play the same fill you know live 
the vast majority of drummers don't. They just do whatever. We, we At this gig I did Saturday, we had to play Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. You know, and and, and it, it's like, bow, 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 and then and the fills like, doo, 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 like so you heard it a million times on the record. I listened to a whole bunch of live recordings and like, like I know it's if you're a pro, you shouldn't. You, everyone just you should do your own thing. I get it, but like I was kind of like, I mean, you heard that fill eight gajillion times and it's kind of perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, I was surprised that none of their drummers played it. You know, I played it at the gig. I I, I don't you know I didn't feel like. I needed to take ownership of that and it would be lame to play the fill. I thought it'd be cool to play it, you know, but anyway, whatever that's, I'm getting into the ethics of what to play and what not to play. <laughs> like I said, I'm, I'm still a fan of transcriptions, but like I said, as, as an analysis tool, I, I remember a few summers back playing an outdoor festival and it, with a cover band. And one of the songs we were doing is rad Barchetta by rush. And I still think I had my drum techniques of rush you know, chart that I had sort of photocopied and I had still have the book, but I had just put it into a binder um, with paper clips because it's an outdoor gig and, you know, the wind's going to take it. And then my wife's standing on the side of his laughing at me because the wind blows my music stand over because I still hadn't transferred it to an iPad because it was a really long chart. And so I'm, I'm, I'm playing the song with one hand, trying to lift up my music stand with the other one. And at that point you realize there is times to let the chart go away and just be confident in the fact that you've played it enough where you can kind of get through it and still capture the spirit of them. But it's a great tool for learning stuff quickly because there are times when when you'll get a call and say, okay, I need you to do a gig in two days and you have to learn 40 songs. Well, yeah, but that, that's, that's, so in those cases, the charts that I make, if you look at the chart book or the, some, of, some of those ones, you know, I, if you have to learn 40 songs in, in a week, you, you can't do that all as transcript. I mean, it would take you forever. So I do it a, a, as a map, but, but rush, that's a good example. I still used transcriptions on the power windows gig, um, from time to time. That's the perfect music to use it for because it doesn't change. Like you can, yes. you know, you're going to be playing the same thing. And it was so funny because on that gig, you know, guys would come up to me and it was all guys, let's face it. Yeah. Uh, um, guys would come up to me and be like, like, oh my God, you're playing this stuff and you're reading it. Like they were impressed because you could read and you're playing Rush. Meanwhile, I'm like, like you shouldn't be impressed. I'm just reading it because I can't friggin' remember it. <laughs> and, and, and it's funny because there are times when you can take stuff that you know, like the back of your head and then just draw a blank in the middle of a gig because there's a little distraction. And so I like having it there as a reference. And for me, some of the charts was just so I have, I can look at, at the, the time signature bars and know that, okay, we're going to switch time signatures in it just for the counting purposes so that the rest of the band knows when to come in. But I will sometimes take a transcription and I will make my own chart out of that, just using that as an arrangement. But the transcription helps me figure out some of those little elements from there. It was funny because I remember for years I had played in a, in a R and B band. And one of the songs we played was Lucretia McEvil by blood, sweat and tears. And I remember taking a lesson with Paul DeLong, who was playing with David Clayton Thomas at the time. And we were looking at chart stuff and he had a chart for Lucretia McEvil. And so I'm looking at the chart thinking, if I had known that the the complex run 
at the end was in five, it would have made the band a lot tighter back then because we were always trying to figure out why things didn't actually sit. So sometimes charts can be in handy to kind of help figure out those those mysteries, why something just doesn't feel right in the first place. So you are actively involved in the publishing industry. You started out kind of as a drum editor for Carl Fisher music of which you worked at for a short period of time. And then you went on to work as this, as the drum editor for Hudson music. And you've also started wisdom drum media, which is a publishing company with Dom family arrow. What led you into that direction? So, uh, I had, uh, my sort of first goal or one of the things I wanted to do, um, I saw a lot of transcriptions in Modern Drummer. Uh, this is probably when I was out of college, out of college in my twenties, and I, I um, my first goal was to try to get something published in the magazine, and then I I did that. I had some, I had a fair number of, you know, charts in the magazine, and then eventually a couple things happened at the same time. I started going to a lot of NAM shows, and that was at Dom's, you know in his coaching of me, he's like, you should go where the industry is and so on and so forth and go and network. And, and so I, I was doing that. And in so doing that, I, I met people, I would go into the publisher booths, Warner brothers at the time, and I made some friends there. And, um, I would just chat with them like, Hey, I love this book. You know, I, I got that drum techniques of rush book. I love it. I bought that drum techniques of Zeppelin book. You guys, and it's like full of mistakes. And the guy's like, yeah, I know. I'm like, you guys should redo that, man. This is full of mistakes. So sure enough, after I had gotten the transcriptions of Modern Drummer, uh, Bill Miller and Ron Spagnardi asked me, hey, you want to do a book of these? I think people would like it. And that was my deal to do MD Classic Tracks. Nearly simultaneously, Warner Brothers asked me to redo that Drum Techniques of Led Zeppelin book. And so those those two books like really kind of put me, and all my articles of Modern Drummer put me on, on uh, the map as kind of like the transcription guy. No, I'm not saying I'm the best at it. As a matter of fact, two of the, couple of the transcriptions in class tracks have mistakes in them. And I just, if you buy the book on my website now, I'll, I'll send you the PDF of the corrected stuff. Like I, I'm, I'm fully, you know, I'm like the New York times. I willingly correct factual errors, you know what I'm saying? Um, but all of this led to just, you know, Dom asked me to write, uh, help him get it's your move ready for publication. So I was working on all these different books got myself published, had some ideas and was enjoying, you know, being a writer and author. I, something I still enjoy. And, um, and one of my friends from New Jersey, you know, was a vice president at Carl Fisher and I would see him at the NAM show. A lot, a lot of this goes to just having your interests, putting in the 10,000 hours, getting some skills together. So you're good at it. And then you go and you network and then things happen. Like you just, you know, it's like the, the the harder I work, the luckier I get. That's that's how it works. You know, like it's not going to happen sitting in your house. So so this one fella, Chris Alpha, he was a vice president at Carl Fisher. He's a keyboard player in the Jersey scene. We played in wedding and bar bands. I used to see him at NAM. Hey man, I see you're doing those books. You know, he'd say to me, you know, you're doing those books. So we should do something together sometime. And then I was doing different projects with all these different companies and. So finally, they seemed really receptive at Carl Fisher. So I did a couple of projects for them. And uh, then down the road, about a year into that, he said, you know, we need a new drum editor. Would you be interested in coming in, you know, have an interview for the, for the position? I said, absolutely. That'd be great. 
does a drum editor do? <laughs> I had no, no idea. And then they explained it to me and I went and talked to the CEO of Carl Fisher and he hired me as a drum editor. He gave me some money each month. I was like, you know, young. It was like, wow, this is amazing. And the first thing he said to me, you know, I was like, here's my ideas for some projects, for drum transcription books and this and that. And he's like, okay, you're going to manage our drum accounts. Now, Sandy Feldstein had been at Carl Fisher for a couple of years before, and he had brought Dave Weckl, Akira Jimbo, Stanton Moore, Rick Latham. Sandy, for those who don't know, was probably the godfather of drum publishing. Um, he was, he mentored Rob Wallace and Paul Siegel at Hudson, Joe Testa, who's now Artist Relations at Zildjian, countless people. And it was a gentleman mentored me when I met him. And Sandy had come over and he'd been the drum guy at Carl Fisher for a while. Um, and he had left and things kind of were not as great, but um, they, I had to be in charge of servicing, you know, Weckl and Stanton and those guys. And then he said, you know, here's a $50,000 budget. I signed this woman on the West coast. Who's like a music therapy hand drummer who does like drum circles and stuff. Uh, you need to um, bring in a DVD project. You have three months and here's the budget and, you know, finish it up and, and, and however you want to do it, you know, have fun kid, you know, and that was, and so I was like, Oh, from going out to the NAMM shows, I had met a guy in California through my friends at Warner brothers that did video. And I was like, okay, let me, let me put some the spreadsheet together here. And I, and I produced a DVD and then I brought all some stuff in. So I did that for a while. I learned on the job. Now Fisher had some unfortunate challenges with how they were doing things uh, that, that made me a little unhappy. They, you know, which I won't get into, but I, I kind of felt like it wasn't going to be a long-term thing that I'd be happy with. And um, there were other bigger players in the drum world, you know, and uh, I was sort of contemplating what I was going to do about this. And I, I was, you know, not really sure about it. And so, you know, I guess, you know what I'm saying? This, this was an organic uh, growth for me. Like I, I'd love to sit here and say like that I had this vision of my career to be this like, you know, multi-pronged, you know, corporate, you know, entity that does publication and playing like, ah, I didn't have any of that. I just, I just followed my nose where I thought I could, you know, enjoy and challenge myself and help, you know, to pay the rent while doing it. You know, that's what we do, you know? And, and I always enjoyed the, the educational, not just teaching, but the writing and the, I always enjoyed it. It's never, you know, when you, when I do copy editing of books or I check transcriptions, like there's other people who probably would think that's torture. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to just do that. I want to play the drums, you know, but, but I don't mind doing it. I, I, I like it, you know? Um, so, so yeah. So I, then I, I was contemplating why, what I should do about this, not being happy at the position I was at. And I had gotten among the projects I brought into Carl Fisher was Jason Bittner. We did a book, um, great metal drummer who's now my good friend. And, um, one day he said, Hey man, you know, the, I'm glad you brought me to Fisher to do the book, but you know, and he, he was, his career had just hit. He had won all those awards, of modern drummer. He said, I signed with Hudson for my DVD. And I said, you know what, bro? I don't, I don't blame you. I'd sign with Hudson for my DVD too. And he said, well, yeah, thanks for understanding. You know, I'm, I'm going to do a clinic at the collective next week. So I figured, well, he's still my buddy and we still did a book together. So I went over to the collective to his clinic and at the end of the clinic, when the room was emptying out, I noticed Rob Wallace and Paul Siegel, who then were the owners of Hudson, who are 
guys I had idolized for doing DCI music video with Simon Phillips, Steve Gadd up close. I, I used to see them at NAMM and I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even go up to them. I just felt like I'm a little peanut. What, what am I going to go up to these guys for? Um, and so uh, that night I approached them and I said, Hey guys, I'm, I introduced myself and I said, I'm the drum editor of Carl Fisher. I specialize in um, doing books and I did transcriptions of modern drummer for a long time. And I, I want to expand, you know, doing much, many more of these book projects. And, um, you know, I'm at Fisher now. I have some experience. I'm, and I said, <laughs> I can remember saying to them, you, I can't imagine you guys need somebody like me. You're the best in the business, but I'm thinking of maybe doing something different. And, and um, I just have, you guys are two of my heroes and, I, I just thought I'd approach you and, and throw it out there, you know? And they sort of looked at each other and Paul Siegel said to me, you know, Joe, we're thinking of growing the business. You know, the timing might be good. Why don't you send us a resume? And Rob said, yeah, it's nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Uh, so I was, you know, again, I just went out, you know, and I had some preparation in the bag and, and the opportunity, you know, a hang happened and it was that, you know, that one, I kind of went, I, I, I thought it was a good chance to approach them because they were there, they were alone and it was, it, it was, you know, I had something conducive to do it. You, I, I don't mean to say that, like, like if you're a guy who wants to play on Broadway, don't roll into town and just start calling the guys who have the shows and, and saying, hey, I'm in town, can I have a show? The, the, you'll, you'll shoot yourself in the foot before you know it. You have to know the right time to do this stuff. Um, so anyway, I went home, made a resume. <laughs> I didn't have a resume. I made a resume. And within a month, I resigned from Fisher and I was working at Hudson. And then it was into the fire. It was like... All these things, copy editing, bringing in a project on budget, learning how to deal with big drum stars when, when you're trying to help them organize a, an outline for a project, um, you know, working on budgets. I have zero training for any of this. I learned it all on the job. <laughs> well, and your job at Hudson, one of the things that is a main element of what you do is to interact with a lot of the superstars and the legends in the industry which can be a challenge at times because you're coming in as a fan, but you're also coming in as a collaborator. So how do you manage going from the fan aspect into developing a good trusting relationship with these artists in order to produce the quality of work that you're known for doing at Hudson music? Well, yeah, thanks for that. Um, so the, I want to make a distinction between being a fan and being someone being a, being a fan in the traditional sense and versus being someone who is a fan of the work. Mm -hmm. So as Neil Peer, as an example, Neil loved, he, he, his life's work was rush the drums and rush. Like he put his entire energy of his being into that. He loved it when people loved his work. He loved when, why would he not love when people loved his work? It was his life's work. What he didn't like was when people thought they knew him and they wanted to know what his favorite color because they liked his playing in Rush. It's like, what does that have to do? You know, now look, I mean, we don't want to get into a conversation about that, but so when you go into a project with any drummer, especially if it's a high profile project and you're there to kind of, be a collaborator or an editor an editor the job of the editor you know the job of the editor is to help to shape the thesis of the of the, the work and make sure that it's focused and and on point for what it is and and when you 
know the work of the author or the subject of that, it, it, it only helps you to do that. And also, the people appreciate that. Now, I, I wish I knew encyclopedic levels about all of the guys. I, I, always, I don't always. Some of them I do. You know, like when it came time to work with Gad, you know, Steve Gad, of course I did, you know, but I mean, certain artists, I did a little, you know, I had to do a little homework, like a crash course. I have to admit I wasn't, you know, um, I didn't know all the work and I had to make sure I did a little research, like with Aaron Spears, for instance, um, or even Keith Carlock. I, I had, I had encountered Keith in New York city before we did the project together with Hudson, but I needed to, I needed to go back. Both of those guys, I had to go back and do some research. And both of those guys were like the coolest, nicest guys to work with. Um, and there's a certain amount of like organizational aspect that you can accomplish just with the knowledge of doing the projects and the not back knowledge of drumming and our clientele without knowing every recording that these people have played on. Um, so that, so that that's part of it. Now, when you get involved with working with some of the people who, you know, I played along with growing up like Liberty DeVito got mm -hmm. to basically, you know, help him write that book. I mean, it's, or it's Stuart Copeland or Neil Peart or Steve Gadd. I mean, it's the most awesome, fun, amazing thing. And there's a, there's a definite, like, you know, there's a definite, um, I guess you'd say pressure, you know, the pressure to make sure you do a really good job. So like if Rob Wallace says to Stuart Copeland, you know, you'll work with our editor, Joe Bergamini, and he'll, he'll make sure this is going to be a top notch product that all drummers will love. And it'll portray you in an, in an amazing light. That's pressure. You know, like I, I have to, you know, I have to come in and step up to the plate and as Dom likes to say, put my big boy pants yeah. on. And, uh, and you know, it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of things like with Neil, when I met Neil with Rob, I've told the story many times, but just the cliff notes, you know, I, I had dreamed of meeting Neil since I started playing the drums, like so many other people. And he was of course being so private, no one got to meet him. So it was the thrill of being able to meet him. But there was this other part of me that's like, like, dude, you know, you, you could go in here and screw up the biggest project that Hudson's going to have during your tenure, you know, in terms of like possible sales potential. If you don't, if you act like a, you know, a little fanboy in here, you gotta, you gotta, you know, you know, get some, uh, focus, you know what I mean? And, and that, that's, that's one of the hardest things to do. You know, I, I, you know, the, so being it that it was a work project and I knew there would be possible future interaction with him, it allowed me to kind of, you know, get, get a hold of myself and not be too much of that fanboy that you were talking about. You know, I can, I know how I can clearly remember being at the NAM show, like my second or third NAM show. And one of my other biggest heroes is Simon Phillips. Like I'm just, I'm still, he's still one of my heroes. I'm super fan of him. And who, and who also is an incredibly lovely gentleman who's just humble and kind as well. Too. I had a chance to meet him uh, last year at the Ralph Angelillo Drum Festival in Quebec, and he couldn't have been nicer. He's super great. I can clearly remember meeting him at an AM show, probably, I want to say probably in 95, maybe or so. And 
I can remember seeing him, he was walking, you know, he was near the Tama booth and he was like purposefully, you know, he's one of those guys, like he, he is a very nice guy, but he does get approached a lot and it's not, you know, he's not always, let's face it. He's not, you can't always be in the mood for that. You can't it's just human nature. Right. And I can remember the feeling of being like, Oh my God, there he is. Like, I, I, I got I to gotta just at least try to say hello. To, I, I may never get to talk to this guy ever. And he's my hero. You know? I can remember that feeling. And, um, and that, you know, sometimes is what it can present you in a, if you get too excited, you know, it, it can present you in a bad light. So, so when it comes to working at Hudson, luckily now I've been able to be around a lot of my favorite drummers. And, and um, so it, gets you know you do it does get a little bit easier to uh to not you know um be too much of a fanboy but but you do but you you do want to make sure you know part of, like i said part of that is good cuz i mean if i go in there and i just don't know anything about somebody that's also probably worse you know um and it's one of the hardest things right now because probably a lot of people listening to this, you know, might be interested in writing a book and the market has gotten really challenging for books. And, you know, sometimes this, this isn't, this isn't really like, this is kind of a corollary to what you asked me, but like somebody will send me a book proposal and they might be a great drummer. I might know them. I might not know them, but it's like, you know, you're trying to look at a project and determine, you know, should we publish this and how can I help publish it? And sometimes you know, there might be a pretty well-known drummer and we might be like, you know, we just don't think we're going to be able to do enough with this to make this, to do justice to this person. We might not be able to do it. Or I might be, you know, if you've sent me a book manuscript ever in your life and you're listening to this, or if you showed me one, like I, I, I physically can't spend, you know, hours pouring over everyone's manuscript. I can't, but it is not lost on me that people come to me with like thousands of hours of their lives invested in this. And here I am, you know, like trying to decide in 10 minutes, whether we it's worthy of publication or not. You know, it's like you hear all the stories of like, you know, the A&R people like, Oh yeah, 20 people passed on you too until they got some, this is like, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, nobody compared to that, but, but I, I don't ever, diminish or take lightly the importance of someone who's gone through the effort to put some work together and, and ask me to, you know, can, is it worthy of publication or even at sometimes, and pe people will, you know, with consultations, you know, they'll ask me for help on a project before they, they even have a deal or if they're, they don't even know they're going to have a book deal, well, you know? And I think one of the challenges sometimes is that people have a vision in terms of a project that they want, but they haven't looked at the market and realized that there's already 150 books out that have exactly the same concept. So you also have to have a, a, a new approach and, right. and something new to offer that isn't already taken up by something that's a classic text and i'm sure that you come across that all the time you, you're you you said you could i could not have said it better myself that was perfectly said i mean and those ones those we reject out of hand i mean it's just uh, sadly you know it's like don't if you come to me and you you come to me with something that's been done a million times i mean you're basically just telling me like you have done no research um but even we we don't get many of those anymore. Most most people are pretty like know that now, and they they come with cool stuff. But it's just you know not always 
it's not always easy. There's a there's a few guys right now that we got, you know, that aren't household names that have stuff out with Hudson, um, like Alex Cohen and and uh, Ramon Montagna. Their their new book is doing really well. They work so hard to promote it. Uh, Rob Mincer has um, uh, stuff you can use, which is like a play along, and he found a niche. It's different from Tommy Igo. It's different from Jim Riley. He's a New York guy. I mean, he's working and his book is doing, doing well. Um, you know, so, so there's, there's in this day and age, you know, I know we're veering from topic to topic, but, but you, you have to have a presence, the author's participation in developing your personality, uh, in the drumming community. And that means social media. That means clinics. That means you're, that you figure out how to get yourself out there, uh, and develop yourself, not in a pushy way, but as somebody who's out there, um, the author's, you know, presence and participation is, is really like, honestly, like the deciding factor in whether the thing is successful or not. We all know people who will put out an album and then they'll have an album release show and they celebrate the fact that their one album release show, they sold a hundred copies of their album. But then after that, they stop promoting it and then they have um, boxes of them sitting in their closet. And I always sort of tell people is that the people that you know that bought your album don't count because you don't have to market to them. You have to kind of go out and start trying to reach people who are new to you and kind of build that up as well too. And I think a lot of times people always fall into the same market where this was successful before, but before I'll do it again and it'll be successful again. But the whole industry and stuff is changing. So you always have to find new ways to promote your product and offer value to people. That's the thing now is that everyone wants value. So you have to find a way to offer some value to someone so that they they can be open up to what it is that you have to say. That doesn't mean that you have to give everything away for free. I think that's a whole other conversation that you and I will kind of agree upon that can be a really negative aspect of the internet where the expectations now is the why should I buy something because I can get something for free. I've always valued everything that I've invested money in a lot more than anything I've ever sort of acquired. So if I like a book, then I'm going to buy the book. If I like an album, I'm going to search out album. I've been tracking down stuff that you've done. I, I, I found the Happy the Man album a while back and I bought that. You did a project, an independent project years ago. I think it was Fla- uh, Flawed Logic. Yeah. Independent. I actually found that used on amazon and i've ordered that too oh wow so because to me some crazy stuff um to me that's half the fun is really kind of you know investing in in the search of trying to track down people's work and 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 by the way those are all really progressive projects so you maybe maybe eat my words of not being (laughs) there is an odd time everywhere and whatever i i think one of my greatest joys, particularly over the last few years of being a drummer, is really understanding the power and uh, and support that the whole drum community brings together. It breaks down boundaries and it brings people of all levels and backgrounds into into a, a situation where we can kind of collectively share our passion for this art. 
A big example of that is the Sabian Education Network, of which is something that you have founded, which is a community and a collaboration of drum educators coming together to share their experiences. Without getting into a really long thing, because I know we're running short on time here, um, what was the vision of the Sabian Education Network and how have you found that to be something that has been a really big benefit to you in your life? That's a great question. So Sabian, the Sabian Education Network is really, it, it's a, it's a great, it, it really is one of the best expressions of our community. You know, you've been, you've been in a lot of the meetings and things like we get together and I, I feel like it really does have a sense of inclusion of, of, of all of us who teach drum set and Sabian since they started has every, everybody who knows anything about Sabian knows they support have supported education since day one. Um, when drum clinics were a much bigger thing, they were one of the leading companies supporting drum clinics. Um, you know, of course they had Dom going all over the world uh, under their banner as their education consultant and still do. So Sabian always, always had that, um, spirit of inclusion. I actually started endorsing Sabian in like 1995 and I, I had a pretty big local following. That's how I sort of qualified for the endorsement. I was doing a bunch of, you know, I, a lot of my, I was really had a lot of, the whole thing about an endorsement is you, you have to have, you have to, you have to have enough influence that you, people buy the products because of you simply put. Okay. And, um, so I had been an endorser. They supported a lot of things with clinics for me. So they kind of knew who I, you know, I knew who I was. Andy Zildjian and I, who's the president and CEO of Sabian have been friends for all that time. It was going on 30 years now. Jeez. Um, so what happened was Sabian wanted to create sort of a, a network of sorts or a, a club for these drum teachers. And one of the Sabian is tr always trying to think of a new, new ways to do things. So they, they had been having some consulting with Rick drum. Uh, and for those who don't know Rick drum, he was president of, uh, he was with Remo for a long time. Then he was the president of Vic Firth for many years. And then he was president of uh, Diodario for a long time, which owns Evans drum heads. And, and when he was an executive in the music industry, every one of those companies, and Rick was a great drummer and teacher too, um, every one of those companies started to emphasize ed education under his watch and expanded greatly from doing it. And so when he he started doing some corporate advising uh, to Sabian, and of course, Andy Zildjian at the helm, Dom was in there, they, they felt that, what can we do to take our support of education to the next level, I think? And they said we should we should make some kind of network or something like drum teachers rick and had come in with all this research finding out that drum teachers have more influence over what their students buy than most endorsers have most famous drummers have they come in they look up to you you're the local teacher and player and you're playing sabian so we we need to bring these guys into the fold we can't give everybody an endorsement but we need to have some other thing so they basically approached me and they said, Dom and Rick and Andy said, you know, we think we got, we know who should run this for us. 
because they already knew me. And Rick and I had gone back. I over the course of my career, I'd been offered different some different jobs in the music industry that would they were more traditional jobs where I'd have to work in an office and give up my playing career. And I never I never took any of those forks in the road. I I never it took me too long to break into Broadway and tour and do all these things that I, I'm not giving that up. So I Rick sort of knew me and he knew that this is a thing that would be perfect for me because of how they wanted to run it. And so him and Dom and Andy said, maybe we'll just ask Joe to do it. So it wasn't even like an interview. They just said, can you, you know, do it? And and what would you, how would you do it? You know, how would you design it? And, you know, having been involved and seen what other companies have done, uh, I didn't want to, I didn't really want to do the same thing. I, I didn't think we needed another gigantic repository of free lesson videos yeah. online. And besides, if you're going to support drum teachers, the way to do that is not to like, you know, publish a zillion drum lesson videos. So people think they can learn the drums without a teacher. That's not, <laughs> that's not how you support teachers. So I thought back to my first percussive art society conference when I would hang out with my new, you know, some drummer friends that I just met, we'd be like at a coffee shop or something be like, Hey, you know, here's a grant from Baltimore and here's some, Mike from Long Island and here's Michael from, you know, Toronto and like, Oh yeah. Hey man. Oh cool. I have 20 students in Toronto. Oh yeah, man. I, I have like, I have 40 in, in, in Tissy. Oh cool. Which, you know, I, I'm having trouble finding a, uh, a jazz book to use after, you know, the art of bop book. What's your, you know, what's your, what's your latest favorite jazz books or, you know, I'm having trouble with people canceling. What's your policy for Like, do you, do you charge when people cancel or, you know, or, or, you know, what are you doing about scheduling? Like, do you, do you let, do you do a program? I can remember the camaraderie that you addressed before of people just trading ideas and, and sharing ideas and doing it person to person. And so my idea for SCN was to try to, you know, scale that up. And uh, I hope, I hope we've done it. For those who don't know, it's the Sabian Education Network. You can go to sabianed.com. Uh, if you teach drums, you just sign up on a little form and, and your membership will get approved and you don't have to have a lot of students and you don't have to play Sabian. You could, anybody can join as long as you really teach, you have to say on the form, how many students you have, it could be two. That's fine. Um, and, uh, and then we have, you know, I, we try to have different benefits. I have to say, Michael, one of the things I, I, during the pandemic, when, when everything was closed down and we would meet like like every week we'd have a Friday round table, me and Dom and some other guests. Like I, I got to say like the pandemic was horrible, but like I'm nostalgic about that. It was so awesome. Like we, I, the emails I would get from people just about how much it was helping them psychologically to feel like still connected to other people in the community to say nothing of the fact that we all started teaching on zoom in like a day yeah. and every week we'd be like, Oh dude, there's this new program you could use. Do this to try this for your camera. Like we were literally helping each other survive. And most of the leading teachers, like, I mean, I, I actually have way more cancellations now. Like everyone went on zoom. No one missed a lesson. They had nothing else to do. Everybody who was like hardcore into it was like th thriving during that. And I'm super proud of that. One of the things that I also like that Sabian has done is the teacher spotlight. And I remember getting an email from you asking if I would be interested in being a, a teacher spotlight thing. And I remember thinking, well, nobody knows who I am, but I'm getting an email from you who I consider to be an industry leader. And I found that really humbling. And what that did to me was it made me realize 
that I've got value in this community and I'm really just a big part of this organization. And, and it was something that did an awful lot for my confidence. Um, and I remember after my episode with my interview with Dom, I got an email, I got a, a message from some teacher in Italy who I never met that I'd watched my episode and just talking about how he really connected with a lot of the things that I talked about. And he said, if you're ever coming to Italy, you got a place to stay. And then I realized the drum community, it's a worldwide community. You know, you, you, you can be, a, a, um, you know, just a, like a small pawn in a tiny little city, but when you're connected worldwide with this community, it just, it just opens up everything. And I think that's something that has really been a, a, a huge savior for a lot of people in this industry, particularly over the last few years with the pandemic challenges. And I highly respect your commitment to this organization. And I know I've got a ton of value from this. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I want to say in addition to, you know, thank you for saying that. You know, Dom was really instrumental in making sure we kept that uh, spotlights going. And we might, hopefully, maybe we'll get back to it. You know, I mean, there's other things we want to do. We have some other ideas that I think people will like. But yeah, Dom, Dom was really insistent about keeping those going. And um, I know that who you're talking about that, that emailed you from Italy. His name is Carlo. And um, Carlo lives in a really small town over there. And man, like, SEN has just like helped him so much. Like he's feels like he's connected to the outside world. I mean, he lives in this tiny little village mm -hmm. and he's just like, you know, dreaming of something bigger. I don't know. He doesn't know what it is, you know, but what, a, what a, we become for good friends. He's, he's a real, he's a sweetheart. He's a gentleman and, and, um, dedicated and great at what he does. And he's, he's like always there. Like he's always there, you know, at everything we do. And, he, he's he's just great it total that kind of thing like for it's most all the time with very few exceptions you and him and dom and like it's just we're making a living in this business where we're it's bringing happiness to people mm -hmm. yeah it's just so one of the coolest things about sen is when like hey you know you want to be the featured teacher on the website this month or do you want to you know be featured in this interview or even if i say hey do you want to get a publishing deal with hudson like man, it's, it's so nice to like i mean I, i'm still working hard to try to keep my thing happening here but i have learned the beauty of being able to like you know be a santa claus to people yeah. sometimes like i just love being able to say hey man you want hudson to publish your book what <laughs> yes of course you know it's like it's super awesome and, the, the, uh, the sabian santa claus so, yeah right so. I, I i hope i hope i'm doing okay i i feel like i could help more people but yeah i'll try <laughs> now as we are kind of winding down here um you have a lot of tasks that you balance in your life you know like i said from education to playing on broadway to teaching to studio work and a whole mix of of different elements plus you you've got a family you're you got tons of things at home you're also on the road a lot of the times how do you balance your life to make sure that your career doesn't overwhelm your family life and your personal life in order to, to, to keep on top of things? That's a great question. In the beginning of my career, and I think everyone 
who has a successful career in this business goes through this. I mean, I was 110% career. Um, missed all kinds of family stuff, like tons and tons and tons of it. My wife, Kim, uh, is a music te- public school music teacher. And um, we've been together a long, long time. We, we, you know, we've been married over 25 years and we've been, we dated for, I think, I want to say seven before we got married. So we've been together a long time. And um, she, someone said, you know, how do you, I think they asked Dennis D. Young this, you know, how, how'd you stay married so, for so long, you know, in the music business? He's like, very simple, marry a saint. Um, <laughs> you know, Kim, Kim was really like, she understood that playing gigs and playing music is not something that's just my job. It's like something I do. It's part of what I do in life. Like I would, I would be, I would be looking for that even if I wasn't making a living doing it. And so there's no, there's no, you can't, you can't have competition with something that's part of someone's personality. It's just part of what it is. So she accepted that from the beginning. Like she knew what I wanted to do. And, and then as we got deeper into our relationship, I knew that she wanted to get married and and have a family. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm down, you know, I mean, that's okay. And then I realized I'd have to bring this stuff into balance. And, um, you know, it's, it's not always easy, but I think that if you, I I guess on to some degree, as long as you care and you, you want, you realize that you have to have that balance and you make sure you make your decisions with the participation of your partner that you find a way um in terms of your relationships of keeping them healthy so for instance anytime i've had big career moves in my in my life you know i talk them over with kim i'm like hey you know so and so wants me to sub on this show i can remember talking when i would get into broadway and then it's like yeah and then he would start calling me and i would be like missing soccer games and kids stuff. I'll be like, you know, they, they want me to do the weekend. She's like, yeah, you should go, you know, you better go. And we, we would, you know, kind of go through it together. And, and then over time, as I got stronger financially, I, I didn't, I still miss a lot of things, but I, I have more control over what I can miss. I, I don't have to miss everything. And I don't now. Um, so that's, that's the relationship part, like kind of in a nutshell and it takes work, you know, and, and Kim is, She's such a great person. Like she, you know, she's inspired me to pay more attention to that side of it. And I, you know, and, and so we have two kids that we raised and they're like my favorite people in the world and we have a great relationship. And so you, 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 you pay attention to that side in terms of the, then there's the, the, the balance of like life with career. And again, um, you know, like being able to manage, I had, I had early on during architecture school, people were dropping out because they couldn't handle the workload. I was studying with Dom and he wanted me to practice like two hours every day. I was finishing the architecture degree. I was in two bands. I had my first 10 students. I was teaching the drum line at my old high school. I mean, I, 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 I was, and I get bored easy, I guess. I don't know. I was, <laughs> I, I, I sort of learned to juggle time, but you know, I, I hate, I hate talking about this. Like it's a motivational speech because when you multitask, a lot of times that what you're doing suffers, the quality of all the tasks suffer. And so, uh, 
it's not simply like, oh yeah, you know, just like, you know, but like, like if you want to copy edit a book, right, you can't, there's, there's no, there's no rushing through. You can rush through it and guess what? You're going to miss all the mistakes. Like, you know, there's, if you want to learn Steely Dan songs, you know, there's only so fast you could do it if you want to do it great, you know? So you, so the point is I sort of learned to, you know, juggle and, and focus on the projects and try to give them the attention and, and to have the one, I still am working on this, but there's one uh, aspect of success that I think all successful people have that I think is the key human trait to all success. And it's one of the hardest, if not the hardest trait for you to, uh, for people to have. And if you have it and you can apply it to all the aspects of your life, you, you will start to succeed and have not just in your career, but in your life, I think. I, I, like I said, I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm just talking about as a, like George Carlin, as an observer <laughs> of human nature. And the, the, the trait I'm talking about is self-discipline. Self-discipline. I'm sure you hear it. I hear it from grown men all week. I didn't have time to practice. Bullshit. Okay? Like, self-discipline is the key. You know, I got into riding my, I'm, and I'm saying this is not like Mr. Tony Robbins. I'm saying this as a failing person who's trying to get better at it, right? Like I got into bike riding during the pandemic and you get like, when you, when you come to a hill on the bike, you know, if, when I first started doing it, I was like, this is awesome. And then you come to a giant hill, you're like, this sucks. <laughs> like, oh my God, this is horrible. And then you go up the hill and I was talking to David Garibaldi about it, who's an avid bike rider, you know? And I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm working hard and I'm starting to get better at it. But the hills, man, they kill you. And you know what Garibaldi says to me, like in the Zen of him, you know, yeah. he's like, bro, the hills make you stronger. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God. But you know, the, the point is like, I still, I'm like, ah, the inertia of not wanting to get on the bike. Cause I know when I, that, you know, 2000 foot elevation game that I want to do today, like I'm going to be killed after I do it. Like I'm still like, so there's an inertia of like, just walk out the door, get on the bike and start to pedal. Same thing. I was actually saying to one of my, one of my adult students, okay, I got this new technique for you for this week. Okay. Check this out. When you, when you're thinking about whether you should practice, walk down your freaking stairs, go into your freaking drum room, <laughs> sit on your freaking seat, pick up your freaking sticks, open the freaking book and start to play. Like just you the, and overcome the inertia of not going to do the stuff. And if you want to do as many things as I do, like I, I'm just the type of person. It's a blessing and a curse. Ask my wife. I when stuff's hanging over me, I have to get it done. I can't. I, I, I. I'm the opposite of a procrastinator. I just, I can't. I don't have that in me. I do. I do for certain things. I'm trying to work on, but, um, so that's, that's that's the only thing I could say as a secret. Well, and for me, I know that one of the things that I have found the biggest stresses in my life are the anticipation of the things that I just can't bring myself to do. So one of the things that I've started doing now is that if I think, okay, I have these five things that need to get done, I do them. And then suddenly 
I'm, I physically feel better. I mentally feel better. I enjoy my downtime more. I can spend quality time with my wife because I'm not distracted by all the other things that I keep putting off doing. And yeah, it doesn't yeah. take long to do, you know. Um, it's some, true. So, I, I was going to say, like, if you it, one thing that I've I've had to do more of now that I didn't have to do before. I, I saw Daniel Glass at the uh, Delaware Drum Show. He's like, how do you do everything you do? And I'm like, man, that's pretty heavy to hear someone say that who's I admire as much as Daniel. And I realize now, like, if I finish a big Hudson project, like, I need to, if I haven't had the hours of focus on SEN during the week of that project, then I have to bring that to the front. And then the other thing, you know, and if I have to learn a new gig that takes hours, like let's say I get asked to sub a Broadway show, which I have a possible one that I might want to do. Like I've done that a lot. I know it's going to take me a hundred hours of, of like, I'm going to have to come down here every day and shed. And so I, I need to, you know what I mean? Like you, you, as the stakes get higher, you have to get better at knowing what you're taking on and then knowing how you're going to shuffle the other project to the back, but then give it the attention it needs when the next thing comes out. I, I find my progress in my playing got significantly better when I assigned myself less, less things to do and I dedicated myself to them. And then I started to get through things a lot more because I sometimes would make a list and say, these are the 10 things I'm going to focus on. When I started focusing on three, I actually learned them thoroughly, got through them much quicker and actually completed all 10 things much faster because I wasn't trying to overwhelm myself but trying to do everything all at the same time just to get it done. So I've got a show coming up that I'm um, I'm playing in the pit band for a musical. And so my focus now for the next couple of weeks is to learn that book because I want to go into what the show. Uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. It's a summer, uh, like sort of a student uh, program. And I did a couple of those last year and I hadn't done those sort of gigs in about 30 years. And I love that sort of challenge, but because I hadn't done this for so long, I, I had kind of forgot about the stress of trying to pay attention to the chart, not get distracted by what's going on on the stage, realizing that there's a mute, like there's the piano players conducting you, but there's also someone else conducting the cast and you can't get thrown off on these sort of things. And then just trying to, you know, balance all of these things. But I love that sort of challenge. And it's one of those things to me that made me appreciate the fact that I invested so much time earlier on in my career in terms of learning how to read because those are not laid back relaxed you know cover band gigs those can be high stress gigs whether it be at an amateur level or a professional level but i pride myself on on being prepared for these sort of things and i, and I love that sort of challenge so i know that for the next couple of weeks that's going to be my focus so some of my other exercises i'll set that aside for a little bit and try and find that balance to make sure that i'm doing the job to the level that I want because I set particularly high standards for myself, much like you do. So I want to be respectful of your time here. So in closing, if people want to follow what you're doing or connect with you, what's the best way to get a hold of you or to find out what your background is and the things that you've accomplished? So uh, I have a website. It's uh, joebergamini.com. 
and I I try to keep it pretty well updated. But that's where you can find my shop with all the the books and different projects. Um, I have I have a little hopefully new offering that's going to be coming out there. It's not a video lesson series, I'll tell you that, um, in the next year. But all my books are there, all the information about my career. And then, excuse me, um, follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram, uh, at Joe Bergamini, and I'm on Facebook, just, you know, under my name, my my uh, drum page is at Joe Bergamini Drums. And um, that one's exclusively just career, just drums and and that content. But my my main page also is well it's a lot of drums there's some of my some personal stuff on there not not um like i i enjoy my travel time and so there's some some travel stuff on there some family stuff um but mainly mostly also music so yeah look for me on facebook on instagram and on my website joebergerme.com and um yeah check check out scn too if you're a drum teacher and um and hudsonmusic.com if you're if you like drum books you know they're obviously not all my books but uh it's uh yeah a company i'm ultra proud to be a part of so yeah those are the i think those are the places to go i want to thank you once again for your time i'm always very appreciative of the conversations that we have and i'm extremely appreciative of all of your contributions and things to the industry i think you're a true leader a true gentleman in this industry and i think a lot of the things that we value really wouldn't have come to fruition if it wasn't for the time and your commitment that you've invested into this craft. So I'm uh, definitely grateful and I am thrilled to not only have you as one of my teachers, but to all cons also to consider you to be a friend. And I just really appreciate your time today. And I wish you all the best of success for the rest of 2023. Thank you so much. And thanks you for having me and uh, proud to be your, your friend and your teacher as well, Michael. Thank you. been listening to the drummer's pathway podcast please share and subscribe get the word out and let's keep the discussion going thanks for listening and i'll see you next time <laughs>